0: Some weeks the the news is filled with kind of big events, you know, like the Jubilee or the Olympics or something, a royal wedding, something like that. Other weeks the the news is filled with uh, politics and all the squabbles at Westminster and all the issues that are sort of being worked on behind the scenes. Other weeks there's a, a war or a natural disaster, an earthquake or a flood or something like that. But I think the most troubling weeks are the weeks where the news is filled with humans, uh, human inhumanity to humans. You know what I mean? Sort of the the unspeakable, unexplainable acts of violence and terror that humans seem to come up with. We've uh, been particularly moved in recent weeks, haven't we, with news relating to innocence, to children. The news coming from the BBC for quite a few weeks. I've had enough hearing about that now. And then this week, uh, again, children back in the news again. First of all, there was the shooting at Clackamas Town Centre, which doesn't mean much probably to you, but it's uh, about seven miles from the Bible school I I was at for four years. Uh, And so gunmen walked into the shopping mall and, and three people left dead at the end of it. And just as that's soaking in, uh, two days later then there's another shooting. This time it's in an elementary school in Connecticut. I I think I saw it's about eight miles from where Zach and Loretta are living. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, the grief that has been caused by that incident just in one man, one place. Twenty children ages six to seven plus six or seven adults. It's, It's horrendous. And when you're watching that kind of news, and then there's all the other news you don't see, by the way. Did you know, I think on the same day in China, uh, there was a knife attack at a school. Uh, A man went crazy and and all sorts of injuries and some fatalities, I think. How how do we look at ourselves in the mirror with, with this kind of evil in the world? Especially when we realize that it's coming out of the heart of humans. Of course, we we can all say, well, I would never do that. It was him. It was her. I would never. But actually, it's always humans. It's always people like us. And if we're really honest, when it really boils down to it, isn't it true that there but for the grace of God go I? Isn't it true that any of us are capable of any atrocity because deep down there is this sin That shoots through the whole of humanity. And when you're looking at that, when you're thinking about that, trying to imagine what those people are going through or praying for for the the people that are left behind and and all of that, don't you find yourself feeling a little bit overwhelmed with a sense of darkness like a a thick, heavy, black blanket has sort of descended on the earth? It's almost as if, you know, you say, well, what's the world coming to? Well, it's nothing new, is it? For hundreds of years, for thousands of years, there has been uh, just a continual stream of evil. And and anywhere we look in history, we we find ourselves going, what is our problem? And You you sort of think that by now we'd have got over it, that by now we would have figured out a solution. Maybe we don't have one. Maybe the solution is not something that we can generate. And so you've got uh, the advances of humanity. Just think about the, the incredible uh, intellects that, that are working in the world. I mean, it's hard to imagine, isn't it, that was it 40 years ago uh, that we were able to put a man on the moon with about as much technology as what, a calculator or something bizarre. And now we're walking around with smartphones in our pockets that are infinitely more powerful than anything they had back then. And and all these advances and, uh, you know, we can fly now and we can do all these different things. And yet we just seem to keep coming up with more and more shocking ways to perform evil. And it seems like in this dark, dark world, we're craving light in a hopeless world, we're craving hope. In, in a conflicted world, we're craving peace. And that's why this Christmas season, we're looking at a passage of Scripture that I think is absolutely precious and vital and critical to us, not because it's, it's lovely and it's Christmassy, which it is, but because even though it's 2,000 years old, in terms of the events that we're reading about, it is incredibly relevant today. And the passage we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 1 is so relevant, it's so important. I have to tell you that as I've looked at this, uh, in light of what's happened this week, I am more passionate to preach Luke 1 this week than I was last week. Why is that? Because it's so relevant to us. So let's get our Bibles and let's look, because in this passage, we're not just going to see some historically nice kind of Christmassy stuff. We're going to see some content here that I think is a message from heaven that we need to hear. Light in darkness, hope in hopelessness, peace in the midst of conflict. Okay, so uh, we've, we've been going through Luke 1, and, and we're kind of leading up to Luke 2, funnily enough. And Luke 2 we're going to look at next week. Luke 2 is the birth of Christ. It's, the, it's really what we sang in that carol that's as long as me. Uh, the, the whole uh, story of the angels and the shepherds and all of that. The angels come, and the angels say, peace on earth. So, right there, wrapped up in the birth of Jesus, is a declaration that it's about bringing peace to this earth. Now, did the angels just get carried away in the moment, in kind of the special moment? I mean, they must have been waiting for quite a while for their, their chance to sing to those shepherds. Did they get carried away, or was that actually the truth, that peace is very much part of the Christmas message? And if so, how? How? I would say it is part, and I, uh, it's not just that I trust angels, I tend to, uh, the ones that are on God's side, that is. But it's because in chapter 1, the theme of peace and the theme of God's king coming to reign on earth and to put things right is weaved all the way through the chapter. It's, it's flowing like a stream, and we've noticed it every week. It's been subtle, but it's been there. And so, two weeks ago, we, we thought about the story of Zechariah, this elderly priest who went into the temple, and he met Gabriel, angel from God's presence. And he came out of the temple unable to speak. You imagine the look on his face, right? Just kind of staggered out. He'd just seen Gabriel. And he was bursting to tell them three bits of news, but he couldn't say a word. He wanted to tell them, I'm going to be a dad. Even in my old age, I'm going to be a dad. And more than that, he wanted to tell them, my boy is going to be special, and I'm not just saying that. He is, really. He's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He's going to be the the, the prophet that God is sending before. Well, that's the third thing. If my son is the prophet that God is going to be sending before the Lord, that means the Lord is coming. God is coming, folks. And that's what Zechariah was longing to speak and, and to declare, but he couldn't say a word. And then last week we saw that Gabriel visited Mary, a relative of Elizabeth. She was up north in Nazareth, a a young teenager, a virgin pledged to be married. And Gabriel came to to Mary with even greater news than he had for Zechariah. Zechariah was going to be the dad of the the kind of the go-before, the preparer, the road builder. But Mary was going to be the mother of the Lord himself. Not just a baby that would be great in the sight of the Lord. No, this one would be great. That, that's a description that's used of God in the Old Testament. This one's going to be great. He's going to be the Son of the Most High. This is God the Son becoming a human in you, my dear. And Mary was blown away by that, but she trusted and she believed. And then she went to visit Elizabeth and they probably chatted a little bit, I would imagine. And and in the midst of all of that, Mary sang that great song that uh, sometimes is called the Magnificat or or, or Mary's Song. It's just the Latin for the first word of, of what she sings. Praising God that this great and powerful God cares for the lowly little people. That's what Christmas is about, isn't it? How God cares for the little people enough to step in. And take people like Mary and and do what he did for her by sending his son. So that was last week. Now, this story today brings us back to Zechariah again. The months have passed. Elizabeth has the child. Okay, And and eight days later, standard custom, they all gather around to circumcise the child. I'm glad that's not our custom. I wouldn't want that to be a public event. But but they gather around. Uh, And actually, they're going to make it a naming ceremony. And they're getting all carried away with all the the hype of the moment. uh, And they're thinking, yes, yes, he must be called, well, typically, he'd be called his grandfather's name. Well, he probably hasn't had his grandfather around for quite a while. Zechariah's so old, he looks like a grandfather. Let's name him after Zechariah. Uh, or, Or maybe, let's be fair, maybe they're so delighted for Zechariah that it seems obvious that they'll name him after his dad. His dad's a good man. And Elizabeth, the spoil sport, says, no, he's going to be called John. And they all look at her like, what do you want about John? Well, you've got no John. You haven't got an Uncle John. You haven't got a cousin John. You haven't even got like a nephew John or any John. There's no John John anywhere in your family. What are you talking about? And so then they go to Zechariah because surely he will be okay with their idea. do you love how everyone wants to name your children? This is why Melanie and I never tell people the name of our child before we have a child. Because we don't want people's opinion. Honestly, because everybody wants to go, oh, or, or, you know, whatever. Where'd you come up with that? And so so we keep it quiet because everybody's got an opinion when someone looks like a Steve. No, no, it looks more like a John. Uh, And so they go to Zechariah. Surely he'll see sense. And they signal to Zechariah, uh, and he can't talk, which he must be used to by now, nine months later. But he gets a, a tablet, and he scratches on the tablet. Notice what he scratches. We we read it earlier. He doesn't scratch, he will be called John. That's what Elizabeth said. No, he says, John is his name, literally, or his name is John. It's already determined. That's interesting, isn't it? Because when he was told that his name was going to be John, that was the last time he could speak. That was when he said, Huh? Have you seen my wife? That's not going to (laughs) happen. And he doubted, and he's been silent ever since. He's learned his lesson, because now he doesn't doubt, he doesn't say his name, eh, kind of, let's go John-ish. He's got it now, he trusts, and he goes, no, his name is John. I get it now, I am trusting God. And he says, his name is John. And verse 64, uh, immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? And he began to speak, praising God. Can you imagine nine months of pent up? What's he going to say? What is Zechariah going to say? Well, that's a great question. Uh, verse 65, the neighbors were all filled with awe or fear. They were, they were, they were sensing something heavenly is going on here. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about these things. Everyone heard who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. You can imagine, can't you? All the, all the neighbors, all the grapevines, just everybody would have heard about this good, godly old couple who miraculously are with child in their old age. And then the boy is born, and then this bizarre naming thing happens. And in that moment, uh, his father starts speaking and praising God. Everybody was all over Twitter 2,000 years ahead of time. They were all tweet- tweeting about this. They were all wondering, what is going on? Because surely God is involved with this child. And so there's two questions. There's our question, what would, what would Zechariah say? Because they heard it. And so, say what? That's question one. Question two is their question. Be what? What? What is this boy going to be? It's so obvious that God is involved here. This child must be something special. And so, say what? Be what? The two questions that are then answered by the rest of the passage. Okay, so let's look at Zechariah's song. It starts with an introductory comment in verse 67. And then we get his song, and this song is so significant, I want us to double underline it as we hear it, okay? I want us to to really get a sense of what Zechariah is saying here, because this is the part that is so massively relevant for us. This is the part that offers light in darkness, hope in hopelessness, peace in conflict, So let's look and see what Zechariah has to say. Verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. Now technically what he does here is he praises and then he prophesies. So we've got a section of praise where he's praising God and then we've got some prophecy where he's uh, saying what's going to happen. So it's described as a prophecy and and Zechariah is going to just spill out. This is what Zechariah has spent nine months pondering. You can imagine it was thought through, right? And and uh, just f- for any of you that come, maybe you've had uh, Anglican sort of higher church background, or maybe you've had Catholic background, this is the song that's referred to as the Benedictus. Okay, It's just the Latin word for the first word at the start of it there, blessed be, or something like that, Benedictus. Okay, So the, don't, don't think there's anything mystical about the name, but just if you hear the name, That's what is referring, this is what that's referring to. And part of the reason that that it has a name and that it has been used down through the years is because of the significance of what is said here. Okay, so I really am trying to build this up so that we don't just go, oh, there's going to be a song. No, I want us to have our hearts open and say, okay, what is it? that Zechariah spent nine months with his Bible open, scroll of Malachi on the table, pondering, thinking with no distraction of his own voice, what is it that he's ready to say? Let's look at his praise first in verses 68 through to 75. Let me read this through just as it is, and then I'll point to three things that uh, are going on here, some repeated ideas. See if you can sense the repetition. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Three things I want us to notice here. First of all, Zechariah is absolutely convinced that God is a God who makes promises and keeps them. God is a God who makes promises and And he keeps them. Notice uh, the repetition of of that idea here. Bear bear in mind, even before I point it out, bear in mind, Zechariah, you might think, well, he's in the Bible. God keeps promises in the Bible. Remember where Zechariah is in history. he's, He's at the end of a very long life. And for all of his life, for decades, he's seen nothing active happening from heaven. He's not seen angels, he's not heard prophecies, there haven't been miracles, nothing for a long life. his father hadn't seen any, nor his grandfather, nor his grandfather before his grandfather. I mean, you could go back four centuries since there was any real action from heaven. And so Zechariah is not the kind of person that's going to say this glibly. He was living in a time very much like ours. At a time where we could say, you know what, if God used to do those things, he doesn't seem to now. It's it's nice, you know, Bible times, that's lovely, but not anymore. God hasn't moved in powerful ways, we haven't seen miracles, we haven't had prophecies, we haven't had angels. I mean, we're living in a time where if God ever could do such things, God doesn't seem to be bothered about such things anymore. Or maybe he's not able to, or maybe he doesn't care. And Zechariah is in the same place as us. And he affirms, no, no, no. God is a God who makes promises and he keeps them. Notice what he says, verse uh, verse 69, the house of his servant David. God had promised to, to David that he would give him a son. That was a thousand years before. A son, a descendant to sit on his throne. That's a thousand years back. Verse 70, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Think of Isaiah and Micah who who had predicted that God would send a descendant of David to sit on his throne and bring peace on earth. That was 700 years before this. You keep going here. uh, Verse 72, to show mercy to our fathers. That is the, the ones that God made promises to. That's the way they're always referred to. In fact, he gets open and clear here. He says to remember his holy covenant, his promise. The oath he swore to our father Abraham. Now, if Isaiah is 700 years back and David's 1,000 years back, Abraham is almost 2,000 years back. So God made promises to Abraham, and to to David, and to Isaiah, and to Micah, and there's been no action, no hint of any answer. In fact, the, the evidence has been the exact reverse, that God is not going to fulfill his promises. For hundreds of years, that's been the evidence. And Zechariah wants to scream to the world, and I'm sure if he knew we'd ever exist, he'd want us to hear it, that God makes promises and he keeps them, even if... It seems to take a long time. God is faithful and he follows through. That's the first thing I want us to see here. But there's a second thing that's weaving its way through this praise section. God makes promises and keeps them. And God loves people and rescues them. God makes promises and keeps them, and God loves people, and he rescues them. Notice what he says here, verse 68. Praise be to the Lord God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation, deliverance for us. Verse 71, salvation from our enemies. Um, Verse 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, redeeming, rescuing, delivering, saving. That's the kind of God that Zechariah is excited about. What does that mean? If, if the problem that we have is so serious that we cannot get out of it, then we need to be rescued. Okay, We need somebody to come from the outside and to rescue us. The first word he uses there is is redeem. That's a a word that they would use of a a slave in the slave market. That you'd go to a slave market and you could buy back a slave. And you could buy the person's freedom and you release them from their slavery. We use the word redeem uh, in a slightly smaller way today, don't we? Uh, Coupons. We redeem coupons. Here, Melanie's managed to come up with an entire book of Tesco coupons. that One of these days I'm going to go to Tesco and I'm going to walk around Tesco and I'm going to find everything in these coupons on the shelves, put it in the trolley, and then I'm going to go to the, the checkout and you do not want to be behind me because I'm going to hand this to the person and all the items. And what is that? Well, I'm going to redeem the coupons. That is, I'm going to... Release what is promised in these coupons. So look at this one 40p off when you buy Tesco organic salted butter Bargain all right? so I'm going to hand that over and by redeeming the coupon They take the coupon and the coupon functions as payment for That 40p's worth of butter, which I'm sure we will enjoy extra much this Christmas Okay, so, so that's what you do when you redeem, is you buy something, you release something. And so we redeem coupons, and, and by doing so, we release the promise that's in them. In those days, you'd go to a slave market and you'd release an actual person. Somebody there tied up in a slave market. They're owned, they're captive, they're hopeless. And you go in and you say, I'll pay for that one. And they say, deal. And you sign the forms and they hand them over to you. And you undo the chains and they say, what? What are you doing? And you say, you're free. I'm setting you free. Wow. That's what God has come to do. That's what Zechariah wants the world to know, that God is a God who redeems, a God who pays the price to set people free. Isn't that awesome? To deliver, to rescue, to save from the hands of their enemies, from the hands of those who hate them. And as we'll see as the song progresses, from the greater problem, which is evil itself. God has come to rescue us from the sin that has wrapped itself around us and is holding us tight, holding us dead until he sets us free. Wow. God is a God who makes promises and keeps them. God is a God who loves people and rescues them. And the third thing I want us to spot before we move into the prophecy section to close is the response of those who are rescued. And we'll see how the rescue works in a minute. But what's the response? What would your response be? If you're standing in a slave market thinking, I've no future. All that's going to happen is I'm going to be beaten and then I'm going to die. And then somebody pays the price and sets you free and says, you're free. What's your response to that person? Oh, ta, very much. See you later. I'm off. Probably not, right? Now look at the response here. Verse 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, and to, or so that, we are enabled to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now you might say, hang on a minute, I don't like that. So so God sets us free so that we can be his slaves? <laughs> That seems like a kind of rubbish setting free, doesn't it? Sort of free-ish. Actually, it's not rubbish at all. What it's speaking of there is the radical devotion of those who've been set free. You you wouldn't just say, thanks, see you, if if somebody set you free in a human slave market, would you? Wouldn't you say, oh, I owe you everything. I want to serve you for the rest of my days. It's the, it's the response of a heart that has been captivated by such extravagant love that you would pay to release me, I'm yours. You see, that's what he's saying here. Zechariah uses the word serve that is used for priests. Typically it's used for the, the priests serving in the temple, doing the, the temple rituals. And I'm sure that in his mind the whole package makes sense. A priest is somebody set apart from normal life to serve God. They look different. They wear different clothes. They're, they're, they're kind of a bit stand out from the world kind of people because they are wholly consecrated. And Zechariah says God has come to rescue us so that we can all be set apart from the world to serve him. In a world of darkness, we can be those dressed in his righteousness. In a world of evil, By a miracle of God's grace, we can be holy. You you, you see, it's exciting, isn't it? You see how God does something that is utterly transformative. He doesn't just set us free and let us go back to our own devices. I mean, that's an option, but it makes no sense. He sets us free so that we can be transformed to live for him. There's a myth in this culture that churches are filled with people who think they're better than everybody else. We don't. If truth be told, we know we are as bad as anybody else. In fact, to use the words of Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, and the chief of sinners. We know how desperately sinful we are, and yet God in his grace and in his mercy has set us free from our sins, set us free from death. And our response is, oh Lord, I want to live for you. And the amazing thing is not that we're sinful. I'm never amazed by my own sin. I just go, oh, Lord, I hate that. What amazes me is that he gives us his righteousness so that those of us who are his could stand before God right now and be considered perfect even though we're not. And what amazes me is that over time he's working his holiness into me and into us. That that surprises me. God is a God who makes promises and keeps them. He's faithful over the long haul. God is a God who loves people and he rescues them. And those he rescues are captive to him to live lives of holy righteousness, which is a positive, I know it sounds so dull and negative, but it's a great positive to live righteously for God as he empowers us and works in us and and brings us into all the life that only he can give. Now that's the praise. But then he gets into the prophecy. Uh, This final four verses, Zechariah says what is going to happen. This is where he starts to bring some clarity. Because everything we've seen so far sounds wonderful. Yes, God keeps his promises. Yes, God rescues people. Praise God. And yes, if I'm rescued, wow, yes, I'll serve him. How does that work? What does God actually do? Well, first of all, he talks about his son, John. Verse 76, he says, And you, my child, just imagine this elderly father holding this little baby in his arms. He says, You, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. There's there's someone coming called the Lord. The Lord is coming. That's going to be critical here. And John's role is going to be to prepare the way. It's like the construction worker preparing and paving the path so that the Lord has something to walk on. He's preparing the way for the Lord to come. That's going to be John's role. Specifically, how is he going to do that? Is he going to like build a road? Is he going to mix cement? No. Verse 77, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. You see, the the real issue in the world is human sin. I was reading about an editorial in one of the newspapers years ago, decades ago, and the editorial ended with the question, what is wrong with this world? G.K. Chesterton wrote back and he said, "Uh, dear sir, in answer to your question, what is wrong with this world? I am. Full stop. And he's right, isn't he? It's easy to point the finger and blame others and and the the extra evil types that that seem to exist. But actually the problem is me. The the problem is, is you. No offense. The problem is that, like Jesus said later on, all evil, all sin spews out of the human heart. And that's why John, coming to prepare the way for the Lord, has to prepare people for a message of sin forgiven. If you sneak a peek down to verse 80, after his song finishes, you get a summary, and it says, The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. So he. He he went off, and and he he was kind of obscure until the moment when he starts preaching. And when he starts preaching, what does he preach? He preaches repent. He calls the nation to turn from their sin. And he he prepares them for the Lamb of God who is coming to take away the sin of the world. He's not saying fix yourselves. He's saying prepare yourselves because the rescuer is coming. And so Luke 1 is just the intro. It's just getting us going. By the way, uh, out there we've got on the stand the Gospels of John. Uh, I think they've got a blue cover. I saw on the table some New Testaments with a British flag on, sort of a Jubilee version. The same content, don't worry. But uh, help yourselves. If you don't have a Bible at home, help yourselves to those and read on. Read Luke, read John, doesn't matter. And see what happens once John the Baptist starts preaching and then once Jesus comes. Because that's how... God rescues, it's through Jesus. And so verses 78 and 79, we've had this son, John, who's preparing the people by by sensitizing them to the real issue, which is their sin. And then verse 78 and 79, he starts pointing to Jesus, the Lord who is coming. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. To shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the path of peace. He says, you know what the answer to the darkness is? It's the light that's coming from heaven. It's the one who's going to be born of Mary. He's the one that's coming. He's the one that that my son is going to grow up and prepare the way for. Because it's not John that's going to rescue anybody. No, he's just going to prepare people. The rescuer is Jesus. How does Jesus rescue? Well, if you read on through Luke, read on through John, any of the four Gospels, you'll find that they're all pointing the whole time to the cross. It's all about the cross. That The point of Christmas is Easter. The reason Jesus came into this world was so that he could go to the cross and die and pay the penalty for our sin. The Bible tells us that there will be a payment made for every sin. And when you see the injustice in the world, don't you cry out for justice? Doesn't your heart say, oh Lord, there must be justice. There is, there has been, there will be. You see, for those of us who trust in Jesus and say, Lord, I'm going to trust you, I'm going to trust that you are my rescuer, then our penalty for sin has been paid. It doesn't mean that we're perfect, it doesn't mean that we've never sinned. We have sinned. We are sinners. But we're not guilty, because Jesus has paid the price. But for those who refuse his offer, justice is still coming. The day of the Lord still looms large before us. Even though for 2,000 years people have said, yeah, whatever, like God's going to come to earth. He is. He did it before. He'll do it again. And when he does, he'll judge. Let me just read you, as we finish here, the words from Malachi, because I sort of joked about Zechariah having the scroll of Malachi open on his table. I think he did. You know why? Because when he met Gabriel in the temple, Gabriel was quoting it at him. He was saying, uh, your son's going to be the messenger preparing the way before the Lord. The Lord you are seeking is going to come. And then in chapter 4 of Malachi, uh, it talks about sending the prophet Elijah before the day of the Lord and turning the hearts of the fathers to their children and so on. And so he'd heard Malachi from the lips of Gabriel and I, I reckon that for nine months he had his scroll open and he was he was devouring Malachi. And, and you know what I think he would have had his eyes resting on? See if you recognize it. The start of Malachi 4, same section. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day is coming. Uh, And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. This is kind of scary. It should be. But for you who revere my name, but for you who trust me, listen to this, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves, calves released from the stall. Doesn't that sound kind of like what he says here? Because of the tender mercy of our God, our God, the God we trust. His tender mercy by which the rising sun, the sun of righteousness rising with healing in its wings. The the rising sun will come to us from heaven. Imagine the deepest, darkest, heaviest blackness you've ever been in. And then the sun rising and the light chasing the darkness away the darkness of the valley of the shadow of death chased away by the light of the coming son of righteousness isn't it beautiful i think zechariah was penning this in his mind for 9 months Between feeling the baby kick and reading Malachi, I think he was writing this song because he was so excited. The sun of righteousness is going to rise. It's going to come from heaven, which seems contradictory, but it's okay. He's a dad and he's excited. To shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the path of peace. You want to find hope in a hopeless world? Look at the baby born first Christmas. He came to bring hope. You want to find light in the darkness of of human evil. Look at that baby Jesus. Because he is the rising sun that is going to chase the darkness away. You want to find peace. In a world filled with conflict. Maybe even you might say in a person filled with conflict. Your own inner turmoil. You want to find peace. Look to Jesus. Because he was on a mission. A rescue mission. To come and to rescue the people God loves. And he came to go to the cross, to die in our place, to set us free, to release us from death, to release us from the hopelessness, from the darkness, from the conflict that is all around and overwhelmingly within us. He's come to set us free. All he asks is that we trust him. But for you who revere my name. But for those who trust him, we can say He is our God. And while He will judge all sin and all evil, and not a single sin will ever go unpunished, we can draw near to Him and call Him our God, because He set us free from the guilt that every one of us has. That's what Christmas is about. That's why I think this is so incredibly relevant, even today. Let me encourage you. Grab a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you pick. Pick your favorite name out of the four and read it through and see just what kind of God we have, just what kind of a rescuer the Bible has to offer. And who knows, maybe once you get through that, there'll be a song on your lips like there was a song on Zechariah's, a song of praise to God, a song of praise to the God who is faithful the God who rescues.